Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. Today we speak with a researcher who finds that the very idea of needing to resort to violence as a more effective, if undesirable, tactic is factually mistaken. Civil resistance, where unarmed civilians use a variety of nonviolent tactics like strikes, protests, boycotts, stay-away demonstrations, and the like, um, can actually uh, often succeed in situations where most people would expect them not to. So when they're trying to remove a dictatorship from power, when they're trying to secede territory, and uh, when they want to expel a foreign military occupation on their land. In fact, nonviolence turns out to be significantly more effective than violence. Nonviolent methods such as these, um, when coordinated and prosecuted by these civilians against their opponents, can be more than twice as effective than violent insurgency. And not only does nonviolence succeed more, the success lasts longer. In countries that have faced the nonviolent campaign, we're much more likely to see democracy emerge there, and it's much less likely to relapse into civil war once the conflict is over. I am delighted to have as a guest on this week's Talk Nation Radio, Erica Chenoweth. She is an assistant professor at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver and an associate senior researcher at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. She is also the co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. Erica Chenoweth, thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. So the basic premise of, uh, of this book and other writing of yours is, is very intriguing. Can you describe the, the claim you make in terms of the, the success of nonviolent activism? Sure. In the book, what we argue is basically three major points. The first is that civil resistance, where unarmed civilians use a variety of nonviolent tactics like strikes, protests, boycotts, stay-away demonstrations, and the like, um, can actually uh, often succeed in situations where uh, most people would expect them not to. So when they're trying to, for instance, remove a dictatorship from power, when they're trying to secede territory, and uh, when they want to expel a foreign military occupation on their land. Um, the second major takeaway is that uh, we actually find that nonviolent methods such as these, um, when coordinated and prosecuted by these civilians against their opponents, can be more than twice as effective than uh, violent insurgency. And the way that we demonstrate that is by reviewing hundreds of mass nonviolent campaigns from 1900 through 2006 and actually looking at their records of success compared with hundreds of violent insurgencies during the same time period seeking similar kinds of goals. And we actually uh, found that the nonviolent campaigns were about twice as effective as the violent ones. And then the third major takeaway is that um, in countries that have faced the nonviolent campaign, uh, we're much more likely to see democracy emerge there, and it's much less likely to relapse into civil war once the conflict is over. Uh, so in other words, Nonviolent resistance often works, even where we expect it to fail, and uh, it has lasting and durable outcomes that generally make life better uh, for everybody than 
um, if, if they had used armed struggle. What are a few examples uh, for people who, who imagine that overthrowing a dictator or expelling a foreign uh, occupation requires violence? Yeah, um, one case that comes to mind immediately is the case of Serbia, where there was a large opposition movement that was spearheaded by a youth movement called Otpor, which means resistance. Um, and they essentially dislodged the Milosevic regime in 2000 using a series of, of nonviolent methods. There are many other uh, cases really throughout the world. We see this phenomenon emerging in, in many places. And what comes to mind for a lot of people immediately is, is uh, Egypt and Tunisia, of course, with the, the very dramatic demonstrations and, and strikes that uh, removed Mubarak and, and Ben Ali from power last year. In terms of, of expelling uh, foreign military occupations, uh, we also saw that in East Timor, uh, where there had been a, a long-standing um, anti-Indonesia uh, occupation struggle uh, for decades that went nowhere, um, there was a, a, a civil resistance campaign that emerged in the, in the 90s um, and that reached out and started to build coalitions within Indonesia among the student movement there. Um, that essentially did more for self-determination and, and the eventual uh, secession of, of East Timor than any of the armed struggle had done in the, in the years previous. You go beyond just the, the statistics, which I'm guessing the past year since the book came out have maybe improved with, with Egypt and Tunisia and other cases, but, but you, you go into analysis of why it would be that nonviolent struggle might be more effective than violent struggle. One of the, the biggest components you look at is the, is the greater participation by a greater number of people. Um, can you talk about how that works? Yeah, so we really drilled down into each of these data points to find out exactly what it is that makes nonviolent campaigns strategically superior to violent ones. And we found one really strong pattern, which is that the nonviolent campaigns tend to be way bigger in terms of the number of people that turn out and participate actively. And uh, we think that there are a couple of reasons for this. The first one is that it's actually um, because of diversity of methods that are available in a nonviolent campaign, it's, it's much easier to participate in many ways than in an armed struggle where there are um, uh, so many risks, not just to joining, but to prosecuting the conflict, to training, and everything else. Um, and that's not to say that there, uh, that there aren't risks with these nonviolent campaigns, but there's almost kind of a, a self-reinforcing uh, self dynamic where once a bunch of people start turning out, um, it becomes safer to participate because there's such safety in numbers. And some movements have actually sought to try to make use of this dynamic of the critical mass element. We saw in Egypt, for instance, that there were activists who were trying to fill smaller alleyways with a couple dozen people, making it look, via kind of an optical illusion, uh, that there were hundreds of people. And this actually encouraged others to turn out. So we know that there's safety in numbers. And so um, basically, there's, it's, it's easier to participate in that way. It's lower risk, especially once the, the numbers start to grow. Um, it's also easier physically to participate in the actions because they don't require uh, youth and agility um, and strength and, and endurance and stamina and the other things that, that most armed struggle does demand on people. So you get a much wider diversity of people participating. You get elderly you get youth, um, you get women that are often excluded from armed activity, um, and then you get uh, your typical um, kind of activists 
so it's a, it, it activates a much broader range of, of uh, social participation. And, and the reason that this matters is because the more people who are participating and the more quality the participants in terms of the range of diversity represented, the more likely the campaign is to be able to activate relationships um, between those participants and people who work in the, in the pillars of the regime's support. And what I mean by that is that you'll have uh, people who work in the security forces and people who work as economic uh, elites or that are civilian bureaucrats or state media, et cetera. And what happens is that the more people participate, the more likely it is that they actually know people personally who work in the government. And uh, they're able to put pressure on them not to convert, but maybe just to stop showing up to work. And so instead of trying to topple the regime um, or, or uh, remove the occupation by targeting the top, instead it's a, more of a grassroots phenomenon, and that's why the numbers are so important. And just to, to give you a data point on that, the, the average nonviolent campaign is about four times larger than the average violent campaign. There's a, there's a rather stunning chart in your book as well of listing the top 25 in terms of participation, ranging from 4.5 million participants to 300,000, and 20 of those out of 25 have been nonviolent, and the nonviolent ones have a 70% success rate and the, non, and the violent ones a 40%. Um, but I'm, I, I'm wondering if you can clarify what counts as participation. Um, it's, it's clearly something more than telling a pollster you'd like a regime gone or a reform enacted. Uh, it's, it's some form of, uh, of, of active involvement. Exactly. What we're looking for here is visible uh, and observable uh, participation. So these are literally counts of people um, that have been observed and documented participating in the campaign by journalists or um, historians that have gone and studied these cases uh, or experts on the particular groups. Uh, activists themselves will often report uh, how many numbers were participating, um, and we often try to take a conservative estimate so as not to overinflate the numbers. Um, so, so we're you know, combining it and triangulating it through a variety of different sources. But we're, we're not just looking for people who sympathize, of course. Um, we're looking for people who are willing to um, physically put themselves um, in opposition to the opponent. So, so I must confess that I, I find the argument uh, completely compelling and, and also confess that I was inclined to before reading it, but uh, to play devil's advocate a little bit uh, for listeners, uh, are, are you counting nonviolent uh, campaigns in the list of data to be considered only when they have become huge uh, so that uh, if we have a campaign, for example, to impeach George W. Bush, and we have majority support in the polls, but it's only a tiny uh, percentage of us doing any sort of nonviolent resistance to make it happen, that doesn't get counted at all. Um, but if it had grown, if it had become big enough to be noticed and counted, uh, then it probably would have succeeded. Uh, and, and so uh, how, do we, uh, how do we gauge the, the likelihood of success when we're trying to start something? Yeah, uh, so this is a really fair uh, point, and we, we actually dealt with it very early on in the data collection effort. Um, so my concern was what your concern is, that we might only be seeing uh, the most successful campaigns and that the ones that fail are in their infancy 
uh, we're never going to be able to observe them, and so we'd be undercounting them. So um, we dealt with this in a couple of ways. Uh, one of them was that um, we actually put a fairly um, high threshold for either the nonviolent or the violent campaigns that are included in the data set. So all of the campaigns are what one might call major campaigns, meaning that they've already escalated to above 1,000 visible participants and that it's actually a campaign. It's not just a one-off event. Um, so the 1,000 participant threshold is important because that means that we're really comparing apples and apples. We have only violent campaigns where there are at least 1,000 people participating and only nonviolent campaigns where there are at least 1,000 per people participating. So all of the claims that we're making assume that it's already gathered some steam. And then um, the second piece about it is that we um, we actually uh, are include we are we're comparing nonviolent to violent campaigns. So we're we're actually comparing like campaigns that are very similar in terms of the things they're asking for. You know, overthrow of a government, secession, and self determination. So we then exclude all kinds of campaigns um, that are looking for reform, economic justice environmental issues, gender rights, um, human rights, those we actually set aside because we're trying to look at what, what one might call major maximal campaigns where they're, where they're literally looking to uh, impose systematic change on the opponent. Um, so that leaves us with a relatively small and totally comparable universe of cases um, so that we can be much more confident that we're comparing things that are similar in every regard except that one set are violent and the other set are nonviolent. We do have nonviolent campaigns in the data set that are small, um, but on average, um, they tend to be much larger than the violent campaigns. And then the next thing I, I, I'll just mention is that um, we, we don't um, include the one-off event, right? So we don't include the, the time where there are 400,000 people who hit the streets and are calling for change, and then they kind of disappear overnight, and they're, they're just kind of blowing off steam. What we're looking at are, are purposive and fairly organized, coordinated campaigns where people are durably um, using a sequence of, of tactics in a row. Um, and so, you know, we, we are looking at a particular form of contention, not just, you know, a protest. We're looking at people um, making a choice to set up a series of, of tactics uh, to try to get their way. So there is some level of coordination that has to be uh, there in order for it to count in the data set. The final thing I'll say about how we dealt with the problem of undercounting is that um, when we were finished compiling our original list of cases, of especially nonviolent campaigns, we circulated it to uh, probably more than a dozen uh, experts in the subject and in different areas of the world and asked them to tell us if we left any out, especially ones that they were aware of that um, did meet those requirements of above a thousand people, but failed, and so didn't make it into the into the history book, so to speak. And, and we did get a couple of additions um, that we put in, that we included in the data set um, through this method. But what I'm I'm pretty confident that we have what one might call a consensus data set of um, all known uh, major uh, nonviolent uprisings above a thousand participants. We're speaking with Erica Chenoweth. Her website is ericachenoweth.com, and she is the author, among other works, uh, co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent 
conflict. Um, one, one other sort of devil's advocate question, which uh, is, is what I run up against in debating this uh, topic with people. I, I had a, a public debate with a, a writer named Ted Rawl on this, where I was pro-nonviolent uh, uh, campaigns and he was pro-violent ones, is that once there's a, a drop of violence involved, uh, he labels it a, a violent campaign and credits any success it might have to the violence or the implicit threat of violence. Uh, whereas in, in your analysis, which uh, seems logical to me, you take a, a campaign such as the first uh, intifada uh, in Palestine and say we have this image from the news of rock throwing, but in fact 97% of what they did was nonviolence. How, do, how does one ever get around the argument that, well, the reason that any nonviolent campaign works is that there's a teeny little bit of violence or threat of violence included, and that's really what worked? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting intellectual argument. Um, there have been some other sociologists that have um, made this argument, for instance, about the, the U.S. civil rights movement, um, which isn't in our data set, but other people have studied quite extensively, saying that it was actually the more radical elements of those campaigns that made the nonviolent actors look like people that you could work with um, and that you would want to make concessions to um, instead of the more militant organizations. And so, I mean, it's an interesting argument. We actually don't find any support for it in, in our work. Um, we do have a way of, of identifying which of the nonviolent campaigns had uh, an element of violence um, that was very minimal but present, um, and uh, we call it a radical flank. Um, and so what we did was um, Kurt Schock and I, who's, he's a scholar at, at Rutgers Newark, um, we actually did a study that tries to identify whether having a radical flank um, or a small element of violence in a campaign um, makes it more or less likely to succeed. And what we found is that basically um, there's an indirect um, reduction in the likelihood that the campaign will succeed um, in our data set. And the reason is because when there's a radical flank, there's far less participation. Um, so, in other words, um, you know, we obviously don't have the Occupy movement in our study, um, but I, last year I was living in Oakland um, when a lot of the um, Occupy activity was really picking up, and I can remember that there was a, um, there was a, a big uh, shutdown of the port in November, and it was hugely, um, I mean, it was like a massive demonstration, and, and there were tens of thousands of people participating. Um, but fairly late in the evening, there were some people that um, either, you know, people. some people argue they were uh, provocateurs, other people argue that they were uh, people coming in from outside of Oakland <clears throat> or just more militant activists um, who started to kind of go at it with the police a little bit. And uh, then there were some smashing of property and there was some stuff that was caught on fire. And uh, regardless of who started it, there was a, a violent element uh, to, to that particular event. And I remember what happened after that is that I would be talking with people that I knew that were participating, and I asked them what they made of this. And they said, well, first of all, I'm never going to associate myself with this movement again because I don't want to be associated with that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's illegitimate and ineffective. But second of all, um, it puts me at risk uh, because I'm fairly elderly and 
when I'm out in the streets and there's street fighting going on, I could get really badly hurt, so I'm not going to show up anymore. And I actually saw this dynamic at work where um, a lot of people that wanted to participate and were very sympathetic with the movement stopped showing up because of the violence. And, and we actually, Kurt and I, see this playing out in all these hundreds of cases of nonviolent campaigns where as soon as the radical flank um, comes in, then uh, the participation declines. And so my argument is, is basically that, um, you know, the, the major source of success for these campaigns is the ability to uh, break apart and away the pillars of support that are propping up um, the status quo or that are propping up the opponent. And so um, the, more, the, the key to activating those um, breaks in the pillar is participation. And so anything that's participation reducing is generally going to be um, is going to is going to make the likelihood of success lower. Whereas anything that's participation enhancing is going to make the likelihood of success higher. You talk about a couple of other factors um, beyond uh, sheer quantity of participants, including uh, I- including tactical innovation and diversity of tactics, as well as as resilience, uh, which you were just uh, referring to, um, and that these uh, grow out of nonviolent uh, action very well, rather than rather than violent. But what would what would you recommend uh, to people who? Uh, who appreciated the Occupy movement and agreed with the analysis you've just given and, and would like to see it uh, revived and, and energized? Or, or what advice would you give to people in, in Gaza or, or anywhere in the world right now who are considering ways to, to confront oppression? Well, it's hard for me to sit in my office and, and, and look at the data and then use that to give anybody any advice. Um, but what I would say is that based on the historical record, um, one of the things that is so useful about having large numbers of very diverse participants is that it allows the movement to be far more flexible, particularly when it does face a very oppressive opponent. And um, this means that, um, you know, even when there is repression, that there are more methods or tactics available uh, to maneuver around it. Um, so if you think about how one might want to sequence tactics, for instance. Um, having a protest at the same time of day, on the same day of the week, every day, or every week, um, is very predictable. No, no general would ever suggest this in battle, for instance, um, that, that you would just resort to the same very predictable tactic day after day after day, um, because it creates unnecessary risk, it becomes normalized, and it loses effectiveness. Um, so what it looks like in the historical record is that large movements that sequence their tactics in a way that maneuvers around repression while also keeping the pressure on the opponent um, say that, you know, for, for a number of days uh, they, they have demonstrations um, and then they announce another de- demonstration that is apparently going to be huge. And so, um, you know, security agents and, and police show up to repress and nobody shows up for the protest. Instead, they all stay inside their houses, bang on pots and pans, uh, turn off their electricity, um, you know, engage in any type of what we might call tactics of dispersion, um, which are very difficult to repress, uh, but can often be very costly uh, to the other side. Um, So movements that really kind of think ahead about um, how they might sequence their tactics to keep the pressure on 
and reduce the risk to their participants in terms of repression, I think uh, have a better shot. Um, it, it should never be the case that people think just because we're nonviolent, we're going to win. Um, I think that this is a, a really dangerous and assumption. Um, uh, movements win because they outmaneuver the adversary, not because they have the moral high ground. Uh, so I, I think that this is a, a really key takeaway from our book. We, we try to make the argument that this is strategically advantageous, but we completely suspend uh, any argument about whether it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, that's for philosophers to debate. Um, but for us, what we find is this really strong, um, very strong and robust association between people creatively using nonviolent tactics and uh, their likelihood of winning. Do you think that there are indications that the world is learning and moving uh, in, in any sort of broad trend toward nonviolent activism uh, and away from violence? Uh, and, and on a more specific level, have you persuaded anyone with uh, your research uh, who was disinclined, uh, who thought that violence was needed uh, to counter evil in the world, uh, have you persuaded anyone to, to say, in fact, it, it doesn't make sense to say we must resort to violence, we must resort to the more effective tool of, of nonviolence? Yeah, you know, changing the narrative around this is really difficult because everybody comes to this question with a set of prior beliefs and assumptions. And in my case, I actually myself came to this work with a prior belief and assumption that violence was probably going to end up um, more effective when we looked at the historical record. Otherwise, why would so many people do it, right? Um, and uh, and I, I come to this research from a very traditional um, security studies background. Uh, so I was personally kind of shocked, and it took me a while, uh, actually, to come to terms with the results. <laughs> wow. uh, and not because I was really disappointed um, that violence didn't seem to be very effective compared to the alternatives, but because I had to change the way I thought about it, to, to change my assumptions um, that were guiding uh, those beliefs. And, and so, um, you know, that's been kind of an interesting intellectual journey for me. And, and for others, I think that the key uh, thing to think about is that the for those that want to argue that violence is more effective than the alternative. You know, at this point, um, the onus will be on them to demonstrate that with evidence, uh, because at this point, the, the, the latest evidence shows the opposite. Um, and I would say that um, we that there have been people that have reached out uh, to me, and and I'm, I won't give any specifics about who they are or where they come from, but there have been people that have reached out and said. Um, this has been very helpful in my movement's discussion about how we should proceed in our struggle. And, um, you know, that kind of thing is really quite impressive. I, I don't know uh, the degree to which we it actually influences their ultimate choices, but it, it gives me a lot of um, encouragement to know that um, the word is getting out and that people are uh, evaluating um, their strategic alternatives in a way that... Um, where they're trying to do what's best for everybody, but also not just downplaying the, the strategic role of, of nonviolent resistance just because it says nonviolence in it. <laughs> um, so, so uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about the potential impact this work could get. And actually, um, one of the things that I'm doing a lot with my time is, is just trying to help to debunk this narrative and the myth about 
the effectiveness of violence in the world. It, it doesn't seem to get us very far, whether it comes by, by states or by non-state actors, and, and much of my research is moving in this direction now. Well, I suspect a great many listeners to Talk Nation Radio will find uh, those facts encouraging as well. Uh, we've been speaking with Erica Chenoweth. Her website for more information is ericachenoweth.com, and she is the co-author of a wonderful book that lays out this information. It's called Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. Erica, thanks for being on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. All past shows can be found at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, engineered by Christian Brown in Reno, Nevada, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. Until next time. <laughs>